This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday night, and boy, do we have a lot of show to do. There is a there has never been so much show compacted into one show as we have tonight. We've got our coronavirus update. We've got Governor Ivey extending the mask mandate. We've got Representative Mo Brooks, who is coming up in just a little bit to talk to us about his bid to get the the House and the Senate to not certify the Electoral College so that they would be voting on it because of the election fraud. And so uh, just an absolutely jam-packed show. This has been an insane news day, but we are going to get as much information out to you as possible because I know, like me, you guys are information junkies, so I will definitely be giving you as much as I can. Uh, we're going to do the best that we can. So let's go ahead and get started with our coronavirus update with the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health. And so you can go ahead and see that the latest numbers right there. You can see that we have 284,922 confirmed cases. 1,684,362 have been tested. There have been 4,034 deaths and 27,618 hospitalizations. So that is where we stand right now, and you may notice that that entire map was the same color, and that's because the cases are really, really high right now. I mean, this is something that pretty much everybody anticipated. It's not something that's a shock, but it is something to be aware of because the weather is starting to get colder, and because of that, the cases are starting to go up substantially. You know, it's interesting because we kind of thought that the summer was just going to knock this thing out because of how sensitive it is to sunlight. And we continued to have cases and we continued to monitor it, which honestly may be like, we, we kind of thought that, okay, maybe weather doesn't have as much of an effect on it as we originally thought. Based on these most recent numbers, it seems as though the answer is yes that we absolutely do have a substantial, the, the weather has a substantial effect on this virus and its ability to spread. It's just that it was lower in the summer, and because of that, and, and because we had not had a really big increase in cases in that preceding winter, because remember, this thing didn't really start spreading around, at least that we were able to monitor, until roughly March-ish. And in Alabama, that's like the first month of summer. So uh, because of that, and, and that maybe that's part of the reason, not the only reason, but part of the reason places that are super rainy and colder, like Seattle or New York, that they had a harder time with this thing early on, and the weather was just something that kind of helped out in the South, that we did have a, a few spikes over the course of the summer, but nothing like this. The weather seems to have a bigger effect on it than maybe we originally thought, or I guess it kind of went back to our original idea. But here's the good news. And I'm going to start us out with the good news, even though I usually start out with just giving you the new case numbers. This is the fatality rate. These, This is really good news that we are seeing, and, and this is largely because of the advancements that our science has made in the realm of therapeutics and, and figuring out how to treat this thing. And, and I mean, even something as simple as nursing, knowing that flipping somebody over on their stomach may have just as much, if not more, of a, a, an effect than putting them on a ventilator. And so we're getting better at treating this thing, and the fatality numbers really bear that out. So let's go ahead and look at those. The fatality rate, this was the fatality rate back in the summer. 
And remember, like I was just saying, we kind of thought we had a spike in the summer, but we really didn't, or at least not compared to what we're having now. And I want you to look at that fatality rate. So that's about 0.45%. And this is adjusted for the CDC's estimation that roughly 10% of people at the time had the coronavirus. Now you compare that in using that same CDC estimate, our fatality rate now uh, for the previous month that we're in currently, 1.1. I mean, that's nothing. Compared to what, I mean, the fatality rate of 0.45%, that's still pretty low. That means that only 0.45, so not even half of a percent of all the people that got this virus back in April and May were dying from it. Now compare that to our fatality rate right now. Now, there's a couple things to consider here. We are having substantially more cases, and we are testing more. And because we're testing more, we know more about the cases, and that does drive the numbers down. So I'm not trying to hide the ball here. I'm not trying to pretend as though our, our treatment has gotten so much better that we've been able to bring down this fatality rate. That's part of it, but it is also because we are more aware of it. Our testing is more, more robust. But either way, regardless of all those factors, this thing now, so far as we know, has a fatality rate of about 0.11%. Now, that is a decrease of... 0.34%, uh, that's, <laughs> we're looking at a fatality rate that was 3.5 times larger back in April and May than it is right now. And another reason that that is so significant is I want you to keep in mind that the flu has a fatality rate, the, the regular seasonal flu, the influenza, it has a fatality rate of approximately, according to our best estimates, about 0.1. Now, what that means is this virus, as it stands right now, as we have been treating it this past month, its fatality rate is only one one hundredth of a percent more deadly than the regular seasonal flu. This is incredibly significant for a number of reasons, as you can see. Now, is you know, the flu deadly for people that are older? Sure. And, and so there's a lot of similarities here. And I'm not trying to say it's exactly the same as the flu because 1.1 is still deadlier than 0.1 even, but that's only a 10% increase in fatality. And another thing that's really important too, and what we've been looking at with some of the statistics compared to the flu, it seems as though virtually nobody is getting the flu. Now, is that actually what's happening? Probably not. And so what's actually happening here is the flu is being diagnosed and kind of lumped in with coronavirus to a large extent. That seems to be what is happening here. And so because of that, it could be that the fatality rate of the coronavirus, again, as we are treating it right now, not how it was back in the summer, but because we have improved our, our methods, we've improved our testing, all of that stuff, it looks like that this thing is pretty much just the same as the flu. Now... It does affect people of certain age groups and with certain comorbidities to a greater extent than the flu does. For example, if you're a 25-year-old, the flu is deadlier to you than the coronavirus is. Now, if you're a healthy 25-year-old, are you likely to die from either one of those things? Not really. But my point in all of that is, these are different viruses. 
it does affect different people in different age groups of different ways, and it is certainly higher impact if you're an 80-year-old. It, it's much scarier to get the coronavirus than it is the flu. I mean, if you're 80 years old, to be perfectly honest, anything like that is probably going to be scary. But my point in all of that is, this thing is not wildly more dangerous than the flu. And I was one of the people in the very beginning that was saying, you probably shouldn't compare it to the flu. I mean, even if it's just, you know, 0.2 fatality, which is like the best case scenario back then, that's what we thought back then, we're actually significantly better off than what was the best case scenario back then, which is encouraging. It, that would still make it twice as deadly as the flu. And so this is something to be concerned about. Never suggested people panic. But, but now we're learning that based on the fatality rate that we're seeing right now and the way that we're treating it, it's barely indistinguishable from the danger level of the flu. And so that is something that is really good. And I know that because there's a political agenda, some people would not like that to be the case. But this is something to be celebrating about. That this thing is still deadlier than the flu, but not by a whole lot. So let's go ahead and look at the caseload with that in mind. So new coronavirus cases in the state of Alabama. We're looking at the seven-day average for this week. That is 3,509. Now the previous seven-day average, uh, that is 2,469. So that is an increase of 1,000 per day within the span of about a week. That is not insignificant, gang. That is a big, big jump. And especially when you consider we're dealing with numbers of two and 3,000, that means that you're getting uh, not a doubling, but a, we, we multiplied our cases by about 1.5, roughly, uh, a little bit less than that, but we multiplied our cases by 1.5 in the span of a week. That's a big deal. And so that's not something that should be disregarded or taken lightly. I mean, our cases are on the rise, and there is absolutely no question about that. Now, this is probably a little bit of a jump from the holidays, people getting together. You know, that was kind of expected. But my point is that either way, that's not an insignificant number. And so hopefully we're going to see that calm down a little bit in the coming days. But we may be hitting the our stride from the holidays from that. And it, it you know, could get worse and Christmas could get better because so many people have it that there's a lot of people immune. We don't know. But uh, that is what the numbers look like as of right now. Now let's compare that to our 28-day average back when uh, back when we did not have the mask mandate. So you're looking right now, remember, mask mandate still in place. Governor Ivey just expanded it. And so here we are, or extended it, not expanded it. So here we are, 2,653 who currently are, those are our new numbers for this month. Our previous 28-day average, and this is, again, right before the mask mandate went into place, so uh, the uh, August 27th through September 24th when the mask mandate was put into place, 1,156. That is an increase of 1,497. So back when we had no mask, we had significantly less cases. Interesting. Now, am I going to sit here and suggest to you that the mask are what caused the things to increase? No. What's happening is we're going through the natural cycle of this virus. 
we're seeing the weather turn in the virus's favor. We're seeing it become a little bit more conducive to human-to-human spread. There's all kinds of other factors, including the fact that it's spiking in other areas, and that affects Alabama. It, it kind of c- cascades and trickles down. So that is taking place. You have people, because it is getting a little bit colder, huddling inside a little bit more. Uh, we've got the thing, like I said, about the holidays. And so all of those things explain, at least in part, why we're seeing such big numbers compared to the way it was before the mask mandate put into place. My point in all of that is just that the mask mandate is obviously not a silver bullet. I get so tired of it. I know not everybody that is at least a proponent of mask wearing. That's different than being a proponent of the mask mandate, and I understand that. Uh, It just gets very frustrating when people that are proponents of the mask will say, uh, no, they talk about it like it's silver bullet, that if we just did the masking, then this thing would basically go away and we'd have no problems with it. Uh, Joe Biden did this shtick. It was like, if we just did the 100 days of masking, and by the way, the Babylon Bee did a fantastic parody of this. Uh, basically, he said that uh, if we just stay out of the sunlight for 100 days, uh, that will cure skin cancer. We'll never have it again. <laughs> Which, I mean, honestly, is, is kind of the way that Joe Biden is talking with this 100-day mask mandate. The thing is, there are several states that have been in a mask mandate for months now, hasn't done a blame thing. And we're seeing the same thing in a lot of European countries that have been in a mask mandate. I think Germany has been in one since, like, if I'm not mistaken, May. And they're still seeing big spikes right now, just like other states around us, like Mississippi and Georgia and Florida, that have no mask mandate in place. And so... Again, you could try to make an argument that the mask does something, frankly, based on the science. I haven't seen anything that suggests that the regular cloth mask that you're wearing out there does anything. Now, an N95 mask worn by somebody that actually has personal protection equipment training, somebody that's a medical professional, yeah, that probably does have an effect. But the average Joe walking out there and taking the mask on and off and putting it in their pocket and taking it out of their pocket and it just a, a regular cloth mask, no, that's not doing anything. And the numbers bear that out because whether you have mask mandates in place or not, we're seeing the same levels of increase, the same levels in spikes in cases. And so that's really where we stand right now is that uh, you can tell just based on the data that we had significantly less cases back when there was no mask mandate in place. I don't think that's because of the mask mandate, but I also don't think that you can say, see how effective mask mandates are because we've been seeing this for months and months, even before this spike set in. So let's go ahead and look at the hospitalizations. This is something to really keep an eye on right now because we don't want our hospitals to be overwhelmed. So this is the seven-day average for this week. That is 257. Our seven-day average for last week, 148. So just like the cases, that is an uptick. I mean, that that is a substantial increase. That's an increase of 109. So we uh, came close to doubling. Not exactly, but, you know, came came pretty darn close to doubling our hospitalization numbers as of last week. And unfortunately, the 14-day average does not bode much better. The current 14-day period that we're in, 215 average hospitalizations per day in the state of Alabama. The previous 14-day average was 187. That is an increase of 28. Now, is an increase of 28 people a day in a hospital? That doesn't sound all that scary. I get that. But think about it, 28 new people per day 
and that's increasing. So it's not like it's, it's, you know, jumping and then dropping back down. Um, no, we're having a, a daily increase of 28 on average. And so that does make a pretty substantial difference. That's how we're averaging 28 more people per day than we were two weeks ago. And so this is something that we also will need to keep an eye on. And this is the only somewhat logical rationale for arguing for a shutdown is we don't want our hospitals to get overwhelmed. Now, are we anywhere near levels where we would think that we are going to run out of resources and run out of hospital beds? And No, we're not. We're simply not. We're nowhere close to that level. Now, are hospitals going to be a little bit swamped over the next couple of weeks? Yeah, probably. But we're not to that level yet. And so far, I've seen no projections of thinking that we are going to be near those levels right now. So let's go ahead and look at deaths in the Yellowhammer State due to COVID-19. Our seven-day average this week, 36.9. Our seven-day average for last week, 35. So this one is a little bit better news. Now, because we're seeing such rapid upticks in cases, then it is likely that we're going to see higher averages for deaths per day. But again, our death rate is not spiking nearly as hard as our case rate or our hospitalization rate, and that is largely because what we have seen thus far is that our therapeutics are getting better, we're getting more effective at treating this thing, and because of that, our deaths are not rising, at least not at the same rate as our cases and our hospitalizations. And so to illustrate that, we only have an, an increase of 1.9 as of this week, and so it, you know, 36 and 35 are high numbers. I remember that where 28-ish was the norm, and now we're significantly above that. But this past week was really not all that bad when it comes to deaths. Now let's go ahead and look at the 28-day average from this month, and that would be 29.3. The 28-day average back when there was no mask mandate in place was about half that, at 14.3, that is an increase of 15 even. So you can see here very quickly, you can see that the deaths have not been increasing at the same rate as the hospitalizations. Look, the bottom line here is these are not freak out numbers. These are high numbers. These are numbers that, okay, everybody, be a little bit cautious. This is the yellow light here. Maybe everybody needs to be a little bit more cautious, stay home. If you can, work from home if you can. Maybe don't, you know, spend as much time outside of the house as you normally do. I know that personally, I'm not thrilled with this decision, but I trust my elders and I, I believe in them. Uh, and, and, you know, I know that they have a tough decision to make, but my church actually shut down for Wednesday night and Sunday and Sunday morning worship just for this week. And, and we're planning on picking it back up right after that. We're going to do everything online. But, you know, that that's not... That's not a ridiculous uh, reaction to this. I personally, I wish that they had left it open just you know to have the option if you want to go. But you know, I'm not going to parse through that and and you know argue with my elders on my my web show. But uh, especially for things that really are non-essential, like you know just going out for entertainment or something like you know because of the numbers, yeah, it's it's a better idea to just be a little bit more careful than you normally would be. And, and that's a smart thing to do at this point. 
But are these like, oh my gosh, we need to do a full-on shutdown and hide in our bunker for three months and buy every scrap of toilet paper we can find? No, we're not. We are nowhere near those levels. And so because of that, I think that a lot of the people that are somewhat freaking out over seeing this are overreacting to a lot of this. Now, despite this, because of these numbers, and I'm saying this only because that's what Governor Ivey told us, Governor Ivey has actually extended the mask mandate. This happened this week at a press conference. So if you'd like to go ahead and watch that, here you go. Y'all, I'm not trying to be Governor Memo, as some on social media have called me. I'm simply trying to urge you to use the common sense the good Lord gave each of us to be smart and considerate of others. The facts are indisputable. Our cases continue to rise and we have more Alabamians diagnosed with COVID-19 than ever before. Because of this, we will be extending the current order with no changes for another six weeks until January 22nd, 2021. All right, so a couple of things right off the bat. Look, guys, you know, I'm not Governor Ivy's biggest fan, especially not the way that she's handled this pandemic. I really wasn't a Governor Ivy fan before all this, but this certainly did not help things. Nonetheless, I wanted you to know, and I think everybody should know, the nickname Meemaw is not derogatory. This is the South. People love their Meemaws. We respect our elders down here. Now, is it funny? Yeah, it's pretty funny. She does look like a Meemaw. In fact, I think one of the main reasons that she got elected in the first place is because she reminds everybody of their grandma. And that's an endearing quality. I call her Governor Meemaw all the time. I don't mean it derogatory, I do think it's funny, and sometimes I'll use it to poke at her, but it's all done in, in good humor. Are there some people on the internet that maybe only use it in a derogatory sense? I don't know, maybe. Then you have to parse through, like, getting into a person's motivation, but I've never used it, you know, specifically trying to demean her or anything like that. I just think it's funny. I, you know, I'm a political commentator, I pick at people all the time for their idiosyncrasies or whatever. I mean, keep in mind, I'm a Republican, and it is not uncommon for me to refer to Mitch McConnell as cocaine Mitch. So, you know, even though there's not an ounce of truth to that. Uh, but, you know, these little things, I, I really hope that she didn't take offense to that, or she's like, I don't, I, I love the fact that she's embracing the nickname, because I think it's funny, I, I really appreciate that, but I just didn't want anybody to think that it was in any way a sign of disrespect or being derogatory. Now, I'm not a big fan of Governor Ivey's decisions, but the Meemaw thing, that's just a goofy joke. So I wanted to, I think I've said this on the show before, but I just wanted to clear the air there. Uh, but I am going to be critical on her on the merits of what she's actually talking about. Not going to pick at her specifically because of what she looks like, even though I think that's a funny joke, but we're moving into serious town here. And so... What she says in that clip is, well, I'm just asking for everybody to be courteous and to use common sense. No, you're not, Governor Ivey. No, you're not. Because if you were, you and I wouldn't have a problem. If the governor stood in a press release in front of all of us and said, look, gang, just be cautious, wash your hands, all that stuff that she says that she goes on to say in that press release after that clip ends, she and I have no problem. I have no problem with the governor doing that. In fact, that's probably the primary 
goal of the office of the state health advisor. And so Dr. Scott, uh, Scott Atlas, that's Dr. Scott Harris. Sorry, different, different doctor. Uh, Dr. Scott Harris coming on and telling people, hey, these are our recommendations and everybody should pay attention to this and, and this is the way that you keep from contracting the virus and we're asking everybody to be a little extra careful over the next few days because the cases are up. Look, I got no problem with that. That is a legitimate function of government and if that's all Governor Ivey was doing, she gets the seal of approval from Caleb Colquitt. But that's not what's going on here. She is using the power of her office and the blunt force of law and actually using power that exceeds her office, that the Constitution of the state of Alabama does not grant her. And if you want to know more about that, I have another video. I think it's specifically titled, uh, Governor Ivey's mask mandate is unconstitutional. And I'm not talking about the U.S. Constitution. I'm talking about Alabama's Constitution. She does not have authority to issue a mask mandate. It simply is not there. However, when it comes to this mask mandate specifically, if she was just asking, that's fine. But she's not. She's trying to use the power of her office to bully people into doing what she thinks is best for her. And that's not okay. I got no problem with government recommendations. It's government mandates that are the issue. And in this case, it was a mandate that was unconstitutional on top of just being not one that the governor should be doing. But also... The rising cases, that's specifically what she cites as the reason for doing all of this. The rising cases does not justify extending the mask mandate, even if she did have the constitutional authority to do so. That's frankly the only thing that masks themselves were supposed to do, but like I have already stated and like the numbers just showed, yes, we are having way more cases than we have ever had in the state of Alabama. But now, this virus is a known quantity. There are more cases, but less people are dying. And our hospitals are not overwhelmed. Ergo, there is no reason to mandate that you have to wear a mask on your face. That simply is not there. And ultimately, it's not effective anyway, because the people that want to wear a mask are going to wear them, and the people that don't aren't going to. And by the way, that's been shown in states that have mask mandates and the ones that don't. I was watching a comparison, and, and granted, this is self-reported data, but I mean, really, what else can you go on when you're surveying this? They surveyed people in South Dakota versus people that were in one of the states that had a really strict mask mandate. I want to say it was Illinois. Anyway, they compared these two, and they found out that the people in Illinois that are saying they wear a mask basically all the time was somewhere in the 80 percentile and in South Dakota, which has no mask mandate and has never had any restriction because of the coronavirus whatsoever, it was like 65. And so there was barely a difference in how often the people were wearing the mask. Look, when people see an increase in the data, when they see an increase in the numbers of cases, they're going to act more carefully. That's how this country works. People make their own decisions on how they behave, on what's right for them and what's right for their family. In fact, putting the mandate in place, that actually just makes people want to not do it, myself included. Liberty-minded individuals, especially in the state of Alabama, who the only consistent rule when it seems to be, uh, when, when it comes to our politics, seems to be, don't tell us what to do. I mean, 
for Pete's sake, Roy Moore is a glowing example of that. But anyway, this is the status that we find ourselves in. And so if Governor Ivey really was just asking, she and I would have no issues. But it's because she's demanding it. That's where I take an issue with what she's saying. And then there was this, uh, a little bit later on in that same press conference, she basically says that, well, the masks are really the only thing left that we have in place, and we've already taken all these restrictions off. And she's not wrong about that, but let's hear it in her own words. The mask mandate remains the one stopgap in order to keep the balance of our daily lives and maintaining health and safety. We return to school, to church, and to work under the conditions of simply wearing a mask. And in many ways, the only limitation on us that is left is the mask. All right, so I want to bring up two minor points here that are in KIV's favor, because I want to start with the good. First of all, her characterization is more or less correct. There's a lot more to the safer at home regulations that are still in place, but by and large, the only limitation that really affects most people, it is the mask. That's, that's really all that's there. Because we've already lifted the restrictions on basically everything else. I say we, I'm Governor Ivy specifically. So we are in a better position than most states. Governor Ivy has been significantly less restrictive than your Gretchen Whitmire's or your Andrew Cuomo's or your Gavin Newsom's, you know, the, the deep, deep blue states. Now, we are the only state that still has a mask mandate in place. I mean, Florida, Mississippi, Georgia, Tennessee, they've all gotten rid of those since then, and I genuinely wish that we would join them. But nonetheless, we are better off than a lot of the deep blue states and the governors that are Democrats. That is an accurate characterization of where we are in the state of Alabama. And in Governor Ivey's defense, she is taking a position that is unpopular with everyone because all the people that think that this is the apocalypse, that this is some kind of uh, horror movie come to life, your, your Kyle Whitmire's and your Josh Moon's of the world, they're freaking out and talking about how horrible Governor Ivy is and how blood is on her hands and she's going to cause people to die because she's not going to shut everything down in the state and we stay locked down for the next six years. So you've got that side of the argument. And then you also have people like myself that think that the mandate is unconstitutional and that the mask have, there's been no data that suggests that wearing a mask actually does anything to help. And because of that, we're not real happy with her either. And whenever you have somebody that is taking a stance that makes them unpopular with both sides, that is a difficult position to be in. And I get that. I do. I don't agree with Governor Ivey on this, but I do acknowledge that she is in an incredibly difficult position to be in. That, that is an accurate statement. However, with both of those, these are super low bars to clear. I mean, the fact that she hasn't been a mini-dictator like Gretchen Whitmire or Andrew Cuomo... Is that a point in her favor? Sure. But let's not pin a gold star on her pantsuit just because this has taken place here. I mean, that's not really award-winning behavior from a governor. Uh, it's kind of like I've always said when they, they talk about the, uh, the Democrats that, you know, that are, are pro-life and they uh, are in favor of abortion, or when a Republican actually, uh, this is even more common, uh, when a Republican will, you'll ask, okay, so why should I vote for you? And they're like, 
well, you know, I'm against abortion. Oh, okay, but that's like the, literally the lowest bar to clear. Like, there's no reason you should even be running as a Republican if you're not in favor of protecting the unborn. So, that's good, but let's not pretend like it's a feather in your cap. And that's the same thing here. I give Governor Ivey credit for not being Gretchen Whitmer and not being Andrew Cuomo, but I'm not grading on a curve here. Continuing to have an unconstitutional mask mandate in place is still not a good thing, regardless of what other governors are doing. You know, that's not an excuse that would have worked for me. When I come home and uh, my dad looks at my report card, I'm like, yeah, I know it's a D, but a lot of kids failed. I mean, his response to that would have been, well, I don't really care what other kids did. I care that you got a D. And that's kind of the position that Governor Ivey, as my employee and your employee, as the governor of the state of Alabama, is in right now. I mean, is she getting an F? No. But the 62 on her report card is not looking good, and it's not something that we should praise her for just because there's a lot of other governors that are worse than her. And so that's really the thing. She, she tries to do this thing where she makes it sound super reasonable in that clip, and this is why I bring this up, where she's like, yeah, but what we've done is we've opened up churches and we've opened up businesses and restaurants, and we've basically... We, the, the magnanimous gov government, have allowed you to go about your lives as normal. We have allowed you to go to church to worship. We have allowed you to go to restaurants to eat out. We have allowed you to engage in business and commerce and sell your wares at your own property to other people that are there of their own free will. Well, thank you, Your Majesty. I really appreciate it. I, I do. I'm really glad that you decided not to restrict our God-given rights. That's real nice of you. I, I mean, do you congratulate the guy if, if you know, a, dude, a big dude just runs up to you and starts punching you in the face and does that for two or three minutes and then stops? Do you thank him for not punching you in the face anymore? No, that's not what you do. These are fundamental, God-given rights. Life, liberty, and property. Right, so far as I know, Governor Ivey hasn't done anything to endanger the life of anybody through these restrictions, even though you could make that argument with you know, increased suicide rates or whatever. She hasn't stayed with the shutdowns as long, so it'd be harder to make that case with Governor Ivey specifically. Uh, but the other two, liberty and property, yeah. Yeah, I would say that there's a definite violation of those two going on here. If you're talking about shutdowns that she's already engaged in, there's definitely a liberty argument with the mask mandate. And so not violating our most fundamental God-given rights, that's not something that you should be hanging your hat on. Is it a good thing? Sure. But I'm not going to thank the governor for allowing me to go to church. No, it's my right to go to church, and you stopping it is wrong. If you're the one that tries to stop that, that's the area. This is the problem that I have with people that are not small government-minded constitutionalists. Look, Governor Ivey's not the worst governor in the world, and I'm not trying to make the case that she is. We, we could be a lot worse off. I get that. But at the same time, I'm just looking at this, and th the arrogance of somebody suggesting that they're basically allowing us to go about our lives as normal, that's not something that I'm going to stomach well. And these are things that are given to us specifically that nobody has the right to trample upon. And this is where I have the problem, and because of that, I, I just don't, 
I don't really think that it is wise or prudent to to treat it as though the government allows us to do these things and we only are able to do them because of their good graces. So I do give Governor Ivey credit for rolling back those restrictions, but they're restrictions that never should have existed in the first place. And this is the problem that I have. So ultimately, uh, Governor Ivey's just never been a liberty-minded individual. She's never been a conservative. I said this back when she was running in the primaries. And she's also never been a leader either. She's basically uh, allowed Dr. Deborah Burks to drag her around by the nose and do whatever she said. And this has been a problem for Governor Ivey. She's not a strong leader. She's not a conservative. She's not a small government person. She never met a spending bill she didn't like. And that's who she is. And this is why it's important to get diehard, dyed-in-the-wool conservative leaders that will stand up when the world calls them, you know, evil or hateful or racist or insert name of ridiculous, absurd slur here when they do something that the left doesn't like. You know, right now, because of the way that they're handling the election, Brian Kemp's not necessarily my favorite person, but dang it, he has done a good job at standing up when people call him all kinds of evil names and say that he's uh, engaged in an experiment of human sacrifice. And he just does the right thing anyway. That's a leader. That's somebody that will actually stand on principle. Governor Ivey's just not that person. So... I'll tell you what we'll do here. We're going to go ahead and go to a break, and we've got Mo Brooks coming up on the other side of this to talk to us about the election and the fraud that's going on there and what he plans to do about it. Uh, it's interesting because it's actually a completely different uh, talking point, uh, separate and apart from the Texas lawsuit that's going on. So be sure to stay tuned for that. We're going to go to a quick break here in just a second. We'll be back on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Well, it's time for my favorite part of the show, a cookie review from insomniacookies.com. It's an excuse for me to eat delicious cookies from insomniacookies.com. So, of course, it's going to be my favorite. Now, if you do happen to live near the Birmingham or the Tuscaloosa or Auburn or Mobile area, then you probably know about Insomnia Cookies because they have actual physical locations there. They tend to be in college towns, that kind of place, so if, if you happen to be passing through those, be sure to stop and, and check them out. But, if you're like me, and you're not near an Insomnia Cookies, unfortunately, you order from insomniacookies.com. Maybe not necessarily as convenient as having one in town, but it's super easy, and they will send you a box just like this one, filled with all kinds of delicious cookies. That's insomniacookies.com. For today's review, it's a little bit different because all the other reviews I've done up until now have all been cookies that I have not tried yet. It was You were getting my live reaction the very first time. Well, you may remember that back in the Joe Biden town hall that we covered, I did a review for the peanut butter cup, which I was very excited about because I love peanut butter stuff. And so far, it's been my favorite cookie. I love the peanut butter cup cookie. But it was live during a debate, so I couldn't exactly go heat it up, and Insomnia Cookies does recommend, and they include in their box, some heat-up instructions for the cookies. Now, they typically tell you to leave a cookie in the microwave for about 10 seconds, that kind of thing. Frankly, I think that, especially with the bigger cookies, the deluxe cookies like the peanut butter cup, at least 20 seconds is the minimum, and maybe even a little bit longer because you want that real melted chocolate kind of texture. And so with this particular cookie, 
Yes, I've tried it, but I've never tried it hot. So we're going to try what has so far been my favorite cookie. And keep in mind, if it's my favorite cookie so far, and I've only had it just straight out of the box, and it was that good, and it impressed me that much, I'm really looking forward to trying the same cookie when it's been heated up a little bit. And just look at this real quick. I want you to, to see this if you're at home. Look at these gigantic chunks of peanut butter. I actually broke the cookie up a little bit. Unfortunately, I had a little mistake and I accidentally broke the cookie. But look at that. These are gigantic just chunks of peanut butter cup in this cookie. And so I'm really looking forward to digging my teeth into this one. Oh, ma'am. The chocolate, the peanut butter, the super soft cookie. Now, you may like the real hard, crunchy cookies. And that's fine. I enjoy a, a good, hard, store-bought cookie every now and then. But typically when I do, it's because there's nothing else. That is my only option. Believe me, if you get a choice between some store-bought cookie or a super soft, melt-in-your-mouth peanut butter cup cookie from Insomnia Cookies, go with this one. The regular peanut butter cup was already my favorite. The heated up version is my new favorite. Oh my gosh, it's so good. I'm actually having to fight my instincts and continue talking during this review instead of just stuffing my face with cookie. That's how good this is. Oh, man. So, you guys have to try this. You want the peanut butter cup? You can get a box full of just peanut butter cup, or you can get mixed and match flavors like I did. Try all the different flavors. I guarantee you're going to find that the vast majority of them are really, really good. And even the ones that you may not have even thought you liked, like I did with the, the oatmeal raisin, not really my favorite cookie. Even that one was really good. So, believe me, you're not going to be disappointed if you're a cookie lover and a peanut butter fiend like me. There's like three or four different flavors that have peanut butter. So, go to insomniacookies.com if you want a mouthful of deliciousness like this for yourself. That's insomniacookies.com. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com. And welcome back to the program, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. And our next guest is somebody that I have talked about quite a bit on the air, but I've never actually had him on. But we are very welcome. Uh, we are very grateful to welcome for the very first time on News Radio 1440 from Alabama's 5th District in the United States House, Representative Mo Brooks. Thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure. Right. So uh, when it comes to everything that's been going on here and, and the insanity that's going on in the election, you have really been kind of leading the charge on this challenge to not certify the results of the election. You've given several, like a, a series of speeches on the uh, on this matter, and for those that may be listening that haven't seen all of the content, um, I, I think it's just really easy for people in our audience and, and the voters to feel overwhelmed because there are so many moving parts of this. There's so many different uh, allegations of election fraud, and they happen in different places. And it's it's you know they they did it by different methods, and so it's really easy for them to feel overwhelmed. Could you give us a summary of, of some of the things that uh, you, you believe is going on here? How much time do I have to give this summary? <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as long as you want to. All right, I will start with this. Okay. The courts have a role to play in this, but they do not have the final say. The legislatures also have a role to play in this, but they do not have the final say. 
both can do things that have a legal effect, but not the final legal effect. Both the courts and the legislatures can do things that affect public opinion, which in turn affects the body politic in Washington, D.C., but not the final effect. Congress and the United States Constitution, Article 1, Article 2, and the 12th Amendment, has the absolute last say. We are the final arbiter. We are the judge and jury of all election contests involving federal offices. If it's a congressman and there's a contest, who won? It's the House of Representatives that makes that call. Nobody else can second-guess whatever the House determines, not as a matter of law. Mm-hmm. If it's a Senate race that is contested, that appeal is to the United States Senate, and the United States Senate determines who wins that contest. That's the end of it. When it comes to a presidential race, again, under the United States Constitution, it's the United States Congress that determines whether to accept or reject electoral college vote submissions of the various states, and it also the United States Congress that would elect the next president of the United States if no candidate gets a majority of the electoral college vote. Now, interestingly, the election of the uh, president and vice president is split into two parts. The House of Representatives, known as the People's House, we would elect the President of the United States, and the Senate would elect the Vice President of the United States. In the Senate, we have a Republican majority. Presumably, they would elect Mike Pence if it got that far. In the House of Representatives, there's an oddity. The House does not vote by a majority of 435 congressmen. Mm -hmm. Whether the House votes and whoever gets a majority of the state delegations wins. So in the House, the president would be the first candidate to cobble together the votes of 27 state delegations. Right now, 27 state delegations are governed by Republican majorities. Mm-hmm. 20 state delegations are governed by Democrat majorities. Three delegations from states are split 50-50. Mm-hmm. So you can see the potential to deny Joe Biden what I believe is an illegitimate presidency because Joe Biden ostensibly won the Electoral College because of massive vote theft and illegal voting on a scale unlike we've seen in American history. You know, what you're talking about there, I do find it interesting that some of your critics on the left have been constantly kind of moving the goalposts because originally it was, this was a a completely 100% legit election. There was not even a hint of voter fraud. Okay, but there was some voter fraud, but not enough to make a difference. Okay, well, there was some wide-scale voter fraud, but not enough to overturn the Electoral College. And so we see this constant moving of the goalpost. Uh, you know, I think that you would agree with me, Congressman Brooks, that we don't want 
the House or the Senate to just overturn elections because of sour grapes or things that they do not like. But what you're talking about here is using it as a backstop. And I genuinely don't believe that our founders would have worked this kind of uh, safety measure into the Constitution if they did not intend for us to use it in a situation exactly like the one that we're talking about here. Well, this kind of fight, not exactly the same, but this kind of fight has occurred in the United States Congress before. Mm -hmm. By way of example, 1824, Andrew Jackson led in the Electoral College. The United States Congress gave that election to John Adams. Mm -hmm. In 1876, Rutherford B. Hayes led by one Electoral College vote over the Democrat. There were three states from the South that had highly suspect Electoral College submissions. Mm -hmm. According to those states, the Republican won the Electoral College votes in Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina. Now, think back for a moment. 1876, mm -hmm. the southern states were still occupied by northern forces. Right. It was still Reconstruction. And there was absolute hatred amongst the Southern population for what in the South was referred to as the War of Northern Aggression, right. where the Northern forces invaded the South, killed hundreds of thousands of Southerners, and destroyed the Southern economy. There's no way in the world that citizens of Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida voted for a Republican candidate for President of the United States. So exactly. those three submissions were contested. The Congress decided to put together a commission. Uh, that commission was supposed to have been bipartisan, half Republican, half Democrat. And then there was one tiebreaker who was supposed to be neither a Republican or a Democrat, but he turned out to be a Republican. So the vote was about eight to seven to recommend supporting Rutherford B. Hayes. Mm -hmm. However, that was not going to fly with the Democrat states across the Union. And so ultimately, this compromise was reached. The compromise was that Rutherford B. Hayes would agree to and, in fact, remove the northern occupational forces in the southern states and end Reconstruction, in which case the Democrats would withdraw their objections to the Electoral College vote submissions of Louisiana. South Carolina, and Florida. That's how Rutherford B. Hayes got elected, when otherwise he would have lost due to the contested nature of those Electoral College submissions. Mm -hmm. So I think people understand that, you know, based on what you've told us so far, that this is constitutional. These parameters are set forth in our federal government by the Constitution, and that there is actually historic precedent for something similar to this happening. So my question now is, how does this challenge work? In other words, what needs to be done? What needs to happen from here on out for this challenge to, to take place successfully and challenge the, uh, the results of the Electoral College? Under federal law, most of this is very clear. Mm -hmm. On January the 6th at 1 p.m., states will submit their Electoral College results 
to a joint session of Congress presided over by Vice President Mike Pence. As each state's submission is read, if one congressman and one senator join to object to and move to reject that state's submission, then the House and the Senate break apart from their joint session. Mm -hmm. Senators go back to the Senate chamber. Congressmen stay in the House chamber. And we have two hours of debate on that particular state's electoral college submission, at which point immediately thereafter, Mm -hmm. there is a vote on the Senate floor and a vote on the House floor. Now, at this time, we will have either 51 or 52 Republicans and either 48 or 49 Democrats. So mm-hmm. the Republicans will have a majority. But even if we had a tie somehow in the Senate, which is unlikely, right? Uh, Mike Pence could break the tie. So that's where it sits on the Senate side. The legal uncertainty is what kind of vote wins in the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. Under the 12th Amendment, when you are voting for the election of a president, because no candidate got a majority of the Electoral College votes, mm. it's not a majority of the 435. It is quite clearly a majority of the state delegations, right. of which right now the Republicans have 27. Right. So California um, gets one vote, just like Alabama gets one vote. That is correct. Um, I'm sure the Democrats would contest that and assert, no, no, no. That's for the election of a president. That is not specifically for a vote on whether to accept or reject electoral college votes, to which our rebuttal would be it's the exact same overall issue, the election of the president of the United States, so that standard ought to apply to both. Mm -hmm. And the Democrats will argue that is not the case. The Democrats have a majority of the 435. The Republicans have a majority of the state delegations. That is a place where the Supreme Court could intervene and resolve that legal dispute. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they would or would not. I don't know how that would play out. But nonetheless, that is the one vagary in this overall process. Okay. If enough electoral college votes are rejected on the House floor and Senate floor such that neither candidate gets the magic number of 270 electoral college votes, then we go directly to the 12th Amendment and the House would elect the president, the Senate would elect the vice president. Mm -hmm. So have you had any word from any of the senators? Has maybe Richard Shelby reached out to you that this is a possibility that they might uh, be the senator that joins you to make this process start? I have not really been seeking that. I have met with um, or communicated with eight to ten senators. Okay. These communications have been at their request so that they can have a better idea of where I and some of my colleagues are coming from. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to do or not do something because Mo Brooks from the state of Alabama asked them. Right. The senators are going to get engaged in this fight if their citizens that they represent demand it. And so it's organic. Mm -hmm. It's got to bubble up from the bottom. And so it's up to the citizens in the various states, the citizens who hear my voice right now, Mm -hmm. if they want to help fix this flawed election system that has allowed socialist Democrats to steal so many votes and, at least on the surface, 
this presidential race, then they need to call their congressmen and their senators Mm -hmm. and demand that those congressmen and senators fight for our republic and our country by stopping and fixing a systemically flawed election process that has enabled the socialist Democrats at the presidential level to garner millions, if not tens of millions, Mm -hmm. of illegal votes and or be the beneficiary of a similar number of votes via voter fraud. So that's where it's got to come from. Now, at some point, Mm -hmm. maybe Donald Trump will wait and call on his legions of supporters Mm -hmm. to make that communication to all senators and Republicans, but that will be his call. What I'm trying to do is make sure that people know what the law is and how egregious this election theft is. You haven't asked me to go into any of the details, but I assure you that I can establish that millions, if not tens of millions of votes, have been illegally cast in this election in direct violation of the United States Constitution and federal statutes. Yeah, and and I know that our time is quickly evaporating and we probably don't have time to get into all those details, but I know that you've given uh, several speeches on the the floor of the United States House of Representatives. There have been lots of other people that have done a lot of work on that, so uh, maybe could you point them in the right direction to see some of that content? Go to, just Google Mo Brooks. Um, My congressional website will come up. Mm -hmm. And go to news releases, and you can probably watch the speeches there, or you can go to C-SPAN, and to the extent that they catalog these things, Mm -hmm. uh, you can uh, watch them uh, that way. Uh, But this is, I mean, this is big, folks. Our republic is dependent on one linchpin, and that is that we have elections that are honest, fair, and accurate. To the extent the Socialist Democrats take that away from us, they're also taking away our republic. You know, that, That's how big a deal this is. Now, I'm, I'm fighting to mm-hmm. make our election system more reliable, more honest, and more accurate. A side benefit, a bonus, would be the election of Donald Trump. But the key is to stop this voter fraud and election theft. That is what the big fight is about. You know, Congressman, this is going to be my last question, but I've got to tell you what you're talking about is just so important because what I'm concerned about is what if this fails? Because the whole point of us having elections and the reason that we as a country have become have been able to be so stable as long as we have really does revolve around the idea that we don't fight with with guns and violence and, you know, we don't have violent revolutions because we have bloodless revolutions, we have elections that we can trust. And once that goes away, I'm afraid that we'll no longer be able to hold the other stuff at bay. Like, I don't want that to happen, obviously, and I know you don't either. But I'm just very concerned for what happens to our country if we cannot trust the election system. And that should be a nonpartisan issue. Absolutely. The moment we lose our ability to control our own destiny, through an honest, fair, and accurate election system is the moment the Socialist Democrats have put us on a dictatorial course that is irreversible. 
All right, so um, if somebody does want to support you in this, if, if they want to learn more about you or learn more about this effort, um, I know you already mentioned your website. Is there anything else that they can do or, or any other place that they could go to maybe help support you? Demand that their congressmen and senators support this effort mm -hmm. and make it very, very clear that if their congressmen and senator senators will not support this effort, you will never in your life vote for them again. And if they're not willing to fight for America, then you're going to fight against them. Well, that is the way to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Well, that is the way to, as, as I'm sure you all know, to motivate most politicians is to let them know that their uh, seat may be in danger. So I certainly uh, think your, your strategy could be effective if that is the case. Uh, thank you so much for being generous with your time, Representative Brooks, and, uh, you know, we, we wish you the best. Godspeed on this. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing. Together we can make it a success. All right. Thank you, Representative Brooks. Uh, that, of course, was Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama's 5th District, and we'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. As always, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. So we do have several other big stories. And like I said, this was just a massive, massive news day. So we're going to get to as much of it as possible. One of the biggest stories that has flown under the radar, and I think we all know why, is the Hunter Biden tax returns. Well, you know, there was a big, big news story today. It was a big break, and no one was expecting it. Apparently, uh, Hunter Biden has business deals in China and Ukraine, and those business deals were very shady and under suspicion and have been being investigated for a long time now, which should come as a surprise to literally nobody that has been paying attention. See, this is the problem that's been going on this entire time. We found out today via report, and, and actually via Hunter Biden himself, that he has been under federal investigation for two years. Not two minutes, not two weeks, two years, long before the election happened. And yet we didn't find anything out about this. Now, this was when Joe Biden may or may not have been the candidate for the Democrat Party. This was back when Joe Biden was the candidate for the Democrat Party and when he was running against Donald Trump and, and including up until election night and afterward. And yet, nobody thought that this was pertinent information that anyone in the country needed to know. It's absolutely astounding. But you guys all knew this because you were paying attention to outlets like this one, like on News Radio 1440, or some of the other great hosts that we have on News Radio 1440, like Mark Levin or Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity. Any of those guys, they've been talking about this. But if you were trying to share it on social media, for example, on Twitter, Twitter would literally suspend your account for even sharing the story. Maggie Haberman a rabid leftist and anti-Trumper who didn't even agree with the story was sharing the story and just got ridiculed and <laughs> suspended for doing so. And this was a story that was put up by the New York Post, one of the oldest newspapers in the country, which was literally founded by Alexander Hamilton himself, a very credible 
news organization. They lean right a little bit, sure, just like the Wall Street Journal, for example, but they're as legit a newspaper as the New York Times is. And yet, despite all of this, if you even talked about it, Twitter would ban you and silence you. And then there's the other side of this equation. The fact that the federal government decided that it was just not pertinent information for the American people to know that Hunter Biden was under investigation and that his business dealings, which happened specifically because of his father, and his father, which we knew at the time, had been taking him all over creation and dropping him off and picking up giant sacks of cash and then hopping back on the plane to go back home with his dad, that that just wasn't important to whether or not the people were going to decide, and I'm not even necessarily talking about the American people as a whole, I'm talking about the Democrat Party. This information came out when they could have picked another candidate. Yet nobody thought that this was important information to divulge. I mean, it's almost like the whole thing was planned. This comes out, what, just a, about a month? Just barely over a month? After Election Day? even though they've been under investigation for two years. And I also want you to think back to what happened with the Robert Mueller report. You remember when they tried to do the whole impeachment thing, which cost us $35 million in taxpayer money and resulted in basically a report that said, yeah, Donald Trump's not like the greatest boss and his White House is chaotic, but zero Russian collusion. It took us... $35 million to find that out. And by the way, if you recall back then, if you were paying attention to the news throughout that entire process, you may recall that that thing had more leaks than a boat made of Swiss cheese. I mean, nothing happened inside the Mueller report that didn't, within the span of a few days, get immediately slipped into CNN or the New York Times or the Washington Post. I mean, to the point to where when the report actually came out, and I know because I looked through it, which was incredibly boring and took forever, and I was kept waiting on a bombshell of new information, and nothing ever came. Why? Not because there wasn't information that we didn't know before the Mueller report started, but because all the information that was in the Mueller report, it got leaked out to the media before the Mueller report dropped. I mean, we knew everything about that document, before it came out, because they were constantly leaking to the media. People in the federal government were constantly just giving drips and drabs and, and little tidbits of information on this investigation, but despite the fact that the son of the per person that was running for president was going around all of creation, and this was known information that he was profiting off of his father's name, and it was under investigation that not only he was the target of, but also to make sure that Joe Biden, the candidate himself, wasn't getting a cut of this. Somehow that doesn't get leaked? Now, don't get me wrong, I complained about the leakers, and if this is classified information or an issue of national security, then there's a good reason for it not to get out into the public. Now, if somebody can show up in the federal government, whether it's the FBI or something like that, and, and makes this case and says, look, we wanted to divulge it or we could have divulged it, but this is the reason that we couldn't. It was a matter of national security. Okay, I'm willing to listen. But you can't tell me that on the one side, we see a leak like every two or three days, 
And in this thing, apparently it was the greatest national secret. It's, it's like the uh, the treasure underneath the Mount Rushmore, the treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. That just stays sealed up for two years. But we know everything about what was going on behind the scenes with the Robert Mueller investigation. You've got to be kidding me. But don't worry, everybody. Go back to sleep. There is no deep state. There are no federal agents that are out to get the president. Shh. It's okay. None of that's real. It's all in your imagination, despite the fact that we knew everything about the Mueller report. We knew everything about the Ukraine call. Uh, we've had hearing after hearing after hearing after hearing on uh, people with zero evidence when it comes to Donald Trump, but with the former vice president's son going around and profiting off of his father's name. And then that person becomes a frontrunner in the Democrat primary and then becomes the Democrat president or the presidential candidate. And it's only after the election we find out that this was going on for two years. Oh, yeah, there's no bias inside the federal government against President Trump. That's crazy talk. That's conspiracy theory stuff. And when it comes to the media, when people are specifically silencing Anybody that even talks about it, even if they do so to disagree with it, they're so terrified that that information might get out that they immediately shut down the account of anybody that even talks about it. But no, nothing to see here, guys. Absolutely nothing to see here. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain censoring all of your posts. You wonder why people think, here's the thing, this is what fuels actual conspiracy theories. I'm talking about the ones that have no relevance, that there's no truth to. It's junk like this that makes people gravitate towards those things because they don't know what they can trust because there's real information out there that just gets shut down by big media. This is why the American people doesn't trust you. They don't trust the media, and they don't trust our institution. You want to talk about eroding faith in an institution? This is how you do it, gang. I'm actually with the Democrats on this one. I think that you should protect the integrity of the institutions. Except that's not a Democrat talking point. Well, you know, unless it's somebody saying that something fishy is going on here, and it benefits the Democrats. That's the problem with this whole thing. It's all about political expediency. When somebody is alleging that there is some kind of anti-right bias, oh, they're a crazy tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy nut. But when you're suggesting that it's the other way around, well, then I guess you're just a truth-teller. All right, so I've got another really good—I I need this story right now, especially after all that, especially after the blatant bias of both the media and big tech and then the people within our own government that are supposed to be looking out for us. I really need this story. So you guys know that I was very involved in FFA for a long time. If you've been a longtime fan of the show, you know this. My dad was an ag teacher, and you know how important it is to uh, give back to agriculture where, well, our neighbors to the east— Georgia, 
actually did something really cool the other day. The Georgia FFA put on a livestock show that specifically was for special needs kids, and there's really not a whole lot of news story here, not a whole lot for me to talk about. I just wanted to give them kudos for that. I think that's really cool. Uh, special needs kids, and, and by the way, showing livestock is not easy. I did it for years. It, it takes precision. It takes experience. Uh, it takes you knowing the animal and working with the animal. It's a lot of practice. It's a lot of hard work. And so the fact that they put this together to help special needs kids be able to do this, and I'm sure that there were some that needed help a lot more than others. I saw some of the pictures in the ring, and uh, it's just really great to be able to do that and, and give those kids a sense of normalcy and accomplishment because, uh, heck, even normal kids struggle with that. That's a difficult thing for them to do, even if they you know, are, are uh, average in that sense. And so it's really cool that they were able to do that, and props to Georgia FFA for being able to do that. Now, I do want to move on to this other story because it just frankly amuses me to no end. Apparently, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that's right, AOC, who apparently it's sexist to call her AOC, and that's why I'm, I'm doing it, uh, named, apparently AOC was named the Goya Employee of the Month. Now, you may be saying, what's Goya? You remember Goya Foods, uh, the CEO of Goya Foods, uh, Bob Ononoway. Ununaway, sorry. Uh, Bob Ununaway, he's the CEO, and he went up to speak with President Trump, and he was announcing, this was early on in the pandemic, that Goya Foods, which is a great company, that they were going to be donating several million pounds of food to help with the coronavirus relief, and they also said that in this, that he was going to be uh, an advisor to the White House for... I believe it was um, his, like America, Hispanic American relations or something like that. And so this guy is a very accomplished person. He employs a lot of people, including a lot of Latinos, but just Americans, which is really the only thing that I care about. And he praised Trump. And because of this and because of the things that he said on stage, immediately the left just lost their freaking minds and started trying to boycott him, including Julio, uh, Julian Castro and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She started calling for protests, and nobody should be buying Goya Foods, a company owned by Latin Americans. Okay, then, AOC. But uh, I love this clip. This is where he was, because uh, he appeared on the um, Michael Berry show. And you can see here Babu Nenewe, who is talking about how they made Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez their employee of the month and why she was given that title. Actually, uh, our employee of the month, I don't know if you know about this, no. because uh, when she boycotted us, our sales actually increased a thousand percent. So um, we gave her an honorary. We never were able to hand it to her, but she got uh, employee of the month for bringing attention to Goya and uh, our adobo. Actually, our adobo sales did, went, did very well after she said, make your own adobo. You know, she's our hero. She, she, uh, she helped boost sales tremendously. All right, so expert troll there, sir. Well done. I, this is, I mean, this is trolling of the highest order that AOC calls for a boycott, and the very product, the specific one that she mentioned in her call for a boycott, the sales went up one thousand percent. I don't know if it was just because people didn't know that they made adobo and AOC mentioning that uh, that caused the scale the the sales to skyrocket. But I mean, that's just you can't write comedy 
that good, but well done, Bobby Nunaway. And here's the thing. When it comes to food products like this, most people don't care about your politics. I like Goya Foods. I, I like their black beans and their pinto beans. I use it to make taco soup. I use it to make quesadillas and other stuff like that. It's a good product. If this guy were a flaming leftist, I would still be buying his foods. Now, the one line I won't cross is if they're giving money to Planned Parenthood. That's the one line I'd like. I, I'd just protest any company that does that outright. And that's why I don't buy from like Starbucks or Energizer or, or some of the other companies that give money to Planned Parenthood. But, you know, beside that, that's pretty much the only line I won't cause that, uh, that, I, that I will not cross. Uh, but most people just don't care about their, the politics. They just like the product. And so what happened there is, did AOC proposing that they boycott, lose any customers? Not in significant numbers. If people like their food, they're going to keep, continue to buy their food. But what it did do is the second that that happened, a whole bunch of people, like myself, who wanted to go out and support uh, this company and this guy for standing up for what he believes in. And the thing is about his speech, and we'll get into this in a second, his speech did say some positive things about Trump and what he's done when it comes to the coronavirus, but the, the vast majority, of the thrust of his speech was much more religious in nature. And what I really liked about this, I was like, man, th this guy's a Christian and I really want to go out and support his business because of that. And that's really what drew me into it. And that they have good stuff. I mean, I wouldn't buy it if it wasn't good stuff. But I, it just, it really is hilarious that this is what happened. So because of that call to boycott, what happened is the people that already bought Goya Foods, like 99% of them continued to buy it. And then it ticked off a whole bunch of people like me that were bothered by the fact that people like AOC were trying to bully this guy into, you know, not sharing his faith and, and not talking about his politics and that kind of thing. So I went out and bought, you know, extras. And I know that there's a lot of other people that did too. And so that's kind of why I think that this were to take place. But I want you to uh, really imagine that Trump is a poison that taints absolutely everything. Imagine that for a second. Imagine that you held that worldview. That Trump is some kind of toxin that the second that he's near anything, he just automatically taints it. That's the only way you can explain this call to a boycott. The guy likes Trump. So what? There are tons of people that I'm sure I buy products from every single day that vote differently than me. That's fine. That's what a free market does. That's part of the reason that the most tolerant economic system in the world is capitalism, because it encourages you to do business with people who do not agree with you. Because it's for the best price, or it's the best product, or it's the product that you can only get from that person. It encourages tolerance. But they just can't see that. They, they, they have such a seething hatred for the man that if you even mention that you like the guy or agree with him, even just on some things, that you are now a pariah that must be cast out. We have to put you out of business. I do not understand this mentality. I really don't. I'm sure I buy products every day from people that like Biden. I think they're wrong. I think they're crazy. But the point is... I'm not going to, like, stop eating at somebody's restaurant because of that. It's the uber-tolerant left that are so blinded by their hatred for this guy that the second that even anybody even mentions that they like him, they have to destroy that person. I, yeah, it really is a, a horrible way to live life. I mean, imagine the stress and the, 
<laughs> that these people are un under having to deal with this every single day. The, the, the Trump derangement syndrome, that's got to be difficult to live with. Uh, let's listen to this next clip where he's talking about AOC and this whole protest. This, again, is, is Bob Unonawe, the CEO of Goya Foods. To go against people for, of her own, you know, Latin culture. And, and uh, she, she's naive, you know. I, to some extent, I can understand AOC. She's young. She's naive. She doesn't get it. But you got someone like Sanders, who's who's uh, older than us and uh, older than me, and he he still doesn't get it. But <laughs> he's older you know, than everybody. Yeah, you know, yeah. We still have a chance with AOC. I, I love her. Now, what I want you to do there is I want you to compare the tone and tenor and the way that they spoke about one another. AOC, because she has a political disagreement with the man, wanted to destroy the man's business and livelihood. His reaction to that was to troll her, yeah. I mean, he's poking fun at her a little bit, and he talks about where he disagrees with her. He says that it's, she's young and she just doesn't get it. He gives her a great deal of grace there. And at the end of that, he, he just laughs it off and says, yeah, you know, I love her. Compare those two worldviews. On the one side, you've got AOC, who's supposed to be this completely open-minded, uh, you know, tolerant person who's just like the pinnacle of intersectionality. And the second, there is a person who, by the way, is also of uh, Latino descent, who is successful and runs a business that uh, those products are largely eaten by people that are of the same descent, that are also Latin American, the second that that crops up, her default is to try to destroy the person and their business and everything that he's worked for his entire life. His reaction to her is, yeah, she's kind of naive and young, and who knows, maybe we can talk some sense into her, but you know what, I love her, it's fine. You see, that's the difference. AOC's God is politics. That is her worldview. She worships at the altar of socialism. And because of that, government is her God. And I've gone into this over and over again. If you want more details on that, I can, I can talk about not just AOC specifically, but how socialists worship at the altar of government. But the point is, to her... Even liking somebody that politically disagrees with her is a form of blasphemy, and that's why she cannot tolerate it. To this guy, somebody that wildly disagrees with him in his worldview, you know, he doesn't mind voicing that opposition, but at the end of the day, he doesn't hate her. See, that's somebody that believes in the worldview that is actually the correct one, the Christian worldview. You can love somebody even if you disagree with them. There's a reason that the motto of this show, the one that is at the tail end that I always emphasize more, is disagreement isn't hate. That is a core tenet of Christianity. It's not one that you're going to find word for word in the scripture, but you see it over and over again. Because at the end of the day, you don't hate anybody. Even if you do wind up disagreeing with them, even if you are wildly different, that you live completely different lives, you, you may not understand one another, you may have a cultural difference, it doesn't matter. You love them for who they are. 
doesn't mean you can't disagree with them openly. doesn't mean you can't fight pretty hard for your viewpoint against theirs. But at the end of the day, you don't hate that person or wish them ill. See, that's somebody that's actually grounded in his faith versus somebody that the only faith they have is in the faith of the government. That's really all she believes in. And it is actually really sad that she lives that way. And it also goes to show, and I don't even know if Babu Nunaway even intended for this to happen, but I think he accidentally highlighted the fact that this intersectionality crap, they only care about it when it's useful to their politics. See, she doesn't care that this is a business that is owned by a Hispanic family and that Hispanics largely are the audience, the people that buy his products. And that would be taken away if there was a boycott and the business wound up collapsing. That's just not her problem. You see, they only care about the intersectionality back, you know, like support black businesses and support uh, people of color businesses. That only matters to them when it helps their side of the political aisle. Now, frankly, I've never cared about it, but I also don't pretend to. I will buy the cheapest product that is the highest quality for the best price that I can get, and I don't care who's selling it to me. Because that's what capitalism is. That's actual equality. That you reward someone with your dollars based on their merit and their ability to supply a good or a service, not based on their skin color. But the truth is, they don't really care about it either, because if they did, then she would never advocate for boycotting for <laughs> Hispanic people to boycott other Hispanic people at a Hispanic-owned business and one of the most successful ones in the country. That would not happen. But she does, because the intersectionality thing, all she wants is a cudgel to bludgeon her political opponents. And so... She runs out every chance she is calling everyone that disagrees with her a sexist and a racist. But they don't really care about the intersectionality thing. They don't care about that. If they did, they wouldn't be doing this. And that's the telltale sign. So we've talked a lot about, uh, about that. But the thing is, the thing that really started all this, the, thing, the, the reason that this guy that's the CEO of Goya Foods was getting all of this hate it really goes back to start to all of this, and this is what they really hate. Because this is him talking about the thing that, you know, blew up on social media and, and everybody uh, got after him about, and the thing that started the protests in the beginning. Yeah, this story is funny, and it believe me, it tickles me to no end. But ultimately, I think sometimes when we do this, we can kind of gloss over the fact that they do hate the guy. The guy spoke positively of Trump, but I think what they hate most about the guy is, is what he mentions right here in this clip. And out there, there's a narrative out there that anything to do with God has to be canceled. It's not that I was canceled, that they want to cancel God. They want to take it out of the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation, indivisible. We cannot be indivisible unless we're under God. And that's what irks a lot of these people who want to uh, hate and destroy versus love and build and cancel God, cancel God. You know, we can open up bars and everything else, or we can open up all these different things, but we can't open up the church. Now, that's the bottom line right there. Whether he intended to or not, 
Babu Nunawe just hit the nail on the head. Because remember, what he talked about at the very beginning of this is how he was donating all of this food and the Holy Spirit was guiding him to do that. That's how, the way he characterized it. And by the way, we saw a very similar message, and I don't know if it was at the same conference or a different one with Mike Lindell, who, the owner of my pillow, who said, yeah, we just kind of stopped making pillows for a while and just made masks because that's what we felt like people needed at the time. And we're just going to give away a lot of that stuff. We're going to make PPE and we're going to make that uh, for other people and donate it. You see, it takes a really soulless person to watch a speech where a guy is saying, you know what, I'm going to donate a whole bunch of the food that I could sell and try to make profit off of. I'm going to just donate that to people. I'm going to donate that to people in need and, and we're going to help a lot of needy people through this, to turn around and then say, we should boycott that person. I really don't get why. I mean, there's tons of people that I don't necessarily politically agree with that do charity work that help people all the time. And when they're doing that, I say more power to them. Abraham Lincoln said, I will stand with any man when he is right. And when a person is right, even if I do disagree with them, I don't mind standing with them. But a guy that comes forward to, for no other reason other than he believes that his religion teaches him that this is what he's supposed to do, says, you know what, I believe that it's, it's part of our mission to take care of one another as Christians, and this is my calling, and it's part of my faith, so I'm going to donate all this food. And the thanks that he gets for that is people telling him not to buy his products because they have a political disagreement with him and he likes a guy that they politically don't like. This is utter madness. And it's stuff like this that is why it's so hard for us to come back together. We cannot have unity as a country when the second that anybody disagrees with you, you can't even support them giving food to hungry people. It's stuff like this that is the reason that people on the right are rightfully so pretty darn skeptical of people on the left say, let's just come together and be unified. No, when you want to destroy somebody's life and livelihood because they like a politician that you don't, I think that's, unity's pretty much a non-starter at that point. Now, I'm not saying every Democrat has that attitude. I'm guessing based on their cell numbers, there's quite a few that don't. But my point in all of that is you can't, out of one side of your mouth, call for unity and out of the other side, try to destroy every single person that disagrees with you. That's just simply not the way that it works here. But the reason that they hate Trump is the bigger issue here. And he just kind of illustrated that. Trump, for all his flaws, for all the things that he's done wrong, for the mistakes that he's made, some before office, some during office, uh, since he's been in office. I mean, he's not been a perfect president. And when it comes to the things like the tweets, yeah, they annoy me, that kind of thing. But ultimately, one thing that Trump has done a pretty good job of is he has acted as a bulwark against secular socialism. And that's what they hate about him. They hate that there are people that in their mind are arrogant enough 
to think that a giant state that controls everything is bad for them. And if you can't shoehorn in the new religion, which is socialism, if you are somebody that stands against that, they hate you. One of the truest things that Trump ever said, and he says a lot of things that he gets wrong, but this thing is about as right as he's ever been. He said, they don't hate you because they hate me. They hate me because they hate you. And that's true. People on the left despise Trump, not because of who he is, but because of what he represents. They don't like the fact that he is supported by what they would view as the rubes in the middle of the country. They hate that. They hate that he stands against the establishment. They hate that he stands as a bulwark against what they want to shoehorn in. Because people that elected him also wanted him to stop secular socialism from taking root. And that's exactly why they can't stand the guy. So I guess the takeaway for all of this is go out, buy some Goya. In fact, I'm going grocery shopping tomorrow. I'll probably pick up some black beans and some pinto beans from them. And do it not because he's a Trump supporter and not because he's Latino and not because you agree with his politics. Do it because he seems like a good guy, it's a Christian company, and it's a good product. I mean, that's reason enough. Go out and support the guy because, you know, he's a Christian and he does tend to see uh, what this is all really about. So let's go ahead and go to the daily dose of stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. <laughs> and for today's daily dose of stupid, someone I'm sure you didn't expect to see in this segment, Chris Rock. Now, full disclosure, I like Chris Rock. I'm a fan. It's kind of like the Ellen Page thing, just because I think that she's, you know, a mentally unstable person doesn't mean that I don't think she's a good actress in a few movies that she's been in. And uh, when it comes to Chris Rock, I actually really like Chris Rock. I like the show Everybody Hates Chris, which he was the, you know, the main character in, and he did the writing for that. I, I like some of his comedy routines. That one that he does where it's uh, how to not get your behind beat by the police, that's one of the funniest videos I've ever seen. And it's true. He actually does give some uh, weirdly good advice through the medium of comedy. And so I don't hate Chris Rock, and to be a comedian, you've got to be a pretty clever person to be able to figure out ways to make people laugh, and so I don't think that Chris Rock is stupid all the time, but man, this was a pretty stupid, I mean, this is AOC levels of stupidity in this, and, and we, I know we're just coming off of a segment on AOC, but seriously, like, the things that he says here, incredibly dumb, he says that he wants a Supreme Court of Science. And so we're going to dig into this, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you about this before we, we go inside. I'm going to commit an argument of authority fallacy. And the reason that I'm going to do it is not because I agree with the fallacy. It's just because I'm doing it to illustrate how ridiculous Chris Rock's argument of, a, uh, of authority fallacy that he's about to commit is. So if I were to come into this saying, Look, what does Chris Rock know about science? He didn't even graduate high school. He dropped out of high school. He went on to do comedy. 
Now, I'm somebody that has a degree in science. I have a bachelor's of science from a major four-year university in Auburn. So I like to think I know a little bit more about science than Chris Rock. Now, those things are all true, but it's still an argument of authority. Just because somebody has a whole bunch of letters after their name or they have all these degrees, that does not make their argument good. That does not make them correct. They can be. Maybe they're more likely to be if they're an expert in the field, but it doesn't guarantee it. You can right or wrongness does not depend on the amount of education that you have. If I walk up to somebody as someone who does not know anything about geometry other than what I learned in high school, and somebody who is a mathematician points at a triangle and says, that's a square, and I say, no, that's a triangle, it doesn't magically become a square just because the guy knows a lot more about geometry than I do. And so you see how the argument of authority fallacy works? And so here's what we're going to do, because Chris Rock is, is about to make a series of these, and uh, we'll go ahead and look at that. This is from Deadline in an interview he did with them talking about this. So he says, I would hope that Mr. Biden institutes some specific uh, scientific department like the Supreme Court of Science, just for the lack of a better name. It would be in charge of anything medical or environmental. All right, so this is dumb for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, this is stupid on just political grounds because obviously a president cannot make a branch of government. You see, the president is a branch of government. He is the executive branch. He cannot magically create a new branch of government. That would be something that would be a, an insanely difficult thing to do because it would require not just an amendment to the Constitution, even though that would be the baseline, but an incredibly detailed amendment to the Constitution to be able to change our federal structure. And so the idea that you could just make a, basically a department of science and make that one of the four branches of government, I guess, in this new weird uh, government system that Chris Rock is imagining in his brain. Uh, yeah, a president can't do that. You would have to have ratification from the states and everything that goes with having a constitutional amendment. So first of all, it's patently stupid to think that a president could do this. And just because Biden's... I really do think the average person thinks the president can just do what they want. I think they think that the president is a dictator. That seems to be the contention of the average person. I don't know why this is, but uh, Chris Rock seems to be in that number. But the second part of that is it's also stupid on scientific grounds. The idea that you have a panel of scientists at the very top of the science hierarchy that decides what is science and what is not science, that's just dumb. Because the whole idea behind science is that it's constantly moving and changing and evolving. And that's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, look at Galileo. Basically, they had a Supreme Court of Science in a very limited sense that dragged him before the court and said, uh, no, you're wrong, the Earth is the center of the universe and we're going to lock you in a tower because you refuse to say otherwise. See, that's what happens when you get a handful of people deciding what the science is. But Galileo was right. Sir Isaac Newton w was right. Just because their ideas were unconventional or was, was not accepted by the science didn't mean they weren't correct. And that's how science continues to get better 
is by people walking up to the orthodoxy or what is commonly thought of as the correct thing and saying, mm, I don't think that's right. Let me do some experiments and see if it is. And, and sometimes they find out they're wrong, and that's fine. That's the scientific method, too. But the entire basis of the scientific method is skepticism and trial and error. You don't get to quash ideas just because you think that they might be wrong. In fact, that's actually a pretty good reason to experiment on them is you think that they might be wrong. Because if nothing else, you have learned and you've disproven that theory and you can write it off and move on. That's how science actually works. Chris Rock doesn't understand this, and unfortunately neither does the average person, because I think there's probably a lot of people, especially on the left, that would think this. What they really mean is, we want people in charge that will make sure that our science goes through. And that's why he ends that by saying that, uh, in charge of anything medical or environmental. You notice that he doesn't add on there, oh, and also uh, fetal development. Why? Because the science there says that no, a baby is a human. That is a human baby. It has human cells that has a genetic signature completely unique, not the same as the mother's that it's living inside at the time. That, that would be a human baby. He knows he doesn't say uh, in regards to anything regarding to gender because the science there says, no, if there's an X chromosome, or sorry, if there's two X chromosomes, that's a female. If there's one, it's a male. You see, they don't want the science, even though I don't even think the science exists, they want their science. They want science that they agree with when it agrees with them as a means to push through their political agenda. And if you don't believe me, you need look no further than literally the very next sentence that Chris Rock utters in this particular uh, article. Basically, I would hope that the government instills a mechanism so that if there's ever anything environmental or medical, this mechanism would take over, thus eliminating politics out of a life-and-death situation. Oh gosh! That is the worst idea I have ever heard. And I do a political talk show. This place is just me debunking bad ideas literally all day long. And that may be one of the worst ideas I've ever... That may be the worst idea I've ever heard. This is where the worship of the science leads every single time. Tyranny. You know who was at the charge of the Holocaust? Scientists. Scientists believed that people with blonde hair and blue eyes were the genetic superiors of people like Jews or gays. Yeah, they, they thought that being gay was a sign that you were a genetic inferior and you had no evolutionary purpose because, you know, of course you aren't reproducing and, and creating kids, and so there's no need for you to be kept alive, and so we'll just kill you. Oh, and you know, there was another group of people that the Nazi scientists didn't really like. Well, oh yeah, it was people like Chris Rock, black people. They believed they were their genetic inferiors as well, and because of that, they could just, you know, execute them, because they're not like real humans. That's why you don't worship science. Because scientists are not perfect. They're humans. They get things wrong. And when you start marrying science to politics, then things get really bad, because then you get bad science and bad politics.
you get science with essentially the force of law to test unproven theories on random innocent people. One of the first victims of Nazism was Baby Nauer. If you don't know who that is, go look him up sometime. It was a child with severe disability, and they had scientists come in and look at him. The first victim of Nazism were not the Jews, were not black people, were not gypsies, were not any of the other people that wound up in prison camps. It was Baby Nauer because the scientists deemed that he couldn't really have a quality of life that meant anything, and so it would really just be the compassionate thing to do to go ahead and kill him. That's what the scientists decided. So let's not act as though, well, if we just had science that just took over the second that there was some kind of life or death situation, that everything would be all roses and sunshine and happy times. No, that's how you wind up in a tyrannical dystopian state. And that's how it happens every time. Science and politics should stay separate. I know people often cite that there should be a separation of church and state. I think that what's far more important is a separation between politics and science, because when you merge those two together, horrible things tend to happen. And let's also not kid ourselves. There were plenty of American scientists that believed black people were inferior, and that's why the institution of slavery was okay especially the Darwinists that had abandoned the God-centered worldview and latched onto a secular one. That's what the science gets you, Chris Rock. You see, I care about Chris Rock. I, I care about him as a human being and as an individual, even if he weren't a famous comedian or somebody that was super rich. I care about him as a person, and that's why his idea of just letting the scientists take care of everything, that's one of the worst ideas that he could have possibly come up with. Science should never be political, and politics should never be run by science. Protecting individual God-given rights, that's the way. That is the way you make sure that everybody stays safe. You don't have scientists just take over every time there is some kind of crisis. That's not our constitutional system. The thing that stays secure and is our North Star is that every single individual matters. Because they are created in the image of God, and as image bearers of God, we have certain inalienable rights given to us by that Creator, and the government cannot trample upon those no matter what the science says. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps under the command of General George Washington. Each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's Report does come from the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be continuing our series there. So uh, we did have to skip over a little bit, but the only backstory that you need to know here is that uh, just like when we left Saul in, in the last little episode that we were looking at, Saul is continuing to pursue David. He is seeking after his life. And what is going on here is that Saul actually pursues David, uh, trying to go back to the temple, trying to find him. The priest hide him. And so uh, basically they send him on a wild goose chase and uh, Saul just doesn't know where to find David. So he's 
he's pretty hardcore trying to kill David at this point, and despite that, there are some people that are still unconvinced, or, or some people that just don't know about it, and Jonathan is one of these people, and, you know, to a degree, you understand it. Jonathan's his son. He doesn't want to believe the worst in his dad. He doesn't want to believe that his dad has gone completely off the deep end and become a psychotic murderer that just wants to kill his best friend. It's an understandable thing that Jonathan does not want to believe this. I, I don't want to be harsh on Jonathan for this, but it does seem odd, considering his father's previous behavior before this episode, that Jonathan's still like, I don't know if dad really wants to kill David. Again, I don't really understand all the family dynamics because the Bible doesn't give us a ton of details on this. But, man, I, it, it kind of feels like Jonathan's living in denial in this passage. But we'll go ahead and look at that. This is from 1 Samuel 20, verses 5 through 11. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I am obligated to sit down to eat with the king. But let me go so that I may hide myself in the field until the, the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly requested to leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says, that is good, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be aware that he has decided on evil. So deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if I am guilty of wrongdoing, kill me yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Be it far from you, for if I in fact learned that my father has decided to inflict harm on you, would I not inform you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will inform me if your father answers you harshly? Jonathan said to David, Come and let us go to the field. So both of them went out to the field. So here they do, they concoct this little plan. And it's actually a pretty darn clever plan, and you can see why David was such a feared warrior and strategist, is because this is the kind of stuff that he comes up with. And so, basically, he's saying, just tell, tell your dad I'm sorry, I couldn't make the, the new moon feast, and so what I did was, because this is the sacrifice time for my family, I went back to Bethlehem. And if he's like, yeah, that's fine, you know, that he doesn't miss him, but if he's really upset about this, it means what he was doing is he was looking for an opportunity to kill David at this feast, and that's the reason that he lured him there, and he's upset that he hasn't seen David. And remember, this is after Saul has already gone off pursuing David and trying to kill him. And so because of this, you can see why th this would be a good indication of whether or not Saul has evil intent towards David in his heart. I do just find it odd, though, that Jonathan still doesn't believe that Saul really wants to kill him. This is after the pursuit. This is after, I believe, three times he's tried to kill him with a spear. Maybe what's going on here, and, and by the way, the scripture actually does say that there was an evil spirit upon Saul, and that's, you remember, why David was brought in with the harp. So maybe Jonathan just chalks this up to the evil spirit, so he just has these temporary bouts of insanity, then he goes after and tries to kill David, but that's not who Dad really is. If he got had the chance to sit down and reason with himself, and remember that Jonathan has actually already had a talk with King Saul at one point, and King Saul said, you know what, Jonathan, you're right, I don't want to hurt David. And so maybe that conversation is part of the reason that Jonathan is just real hesitant to believe this about his dad. But Machal does. His sister, who is married to David, remember that already she has had to basically make a decoy to keep her husband from being killed in his sleep by Saul's men. 
Machal, before this event happened, already believed that Saul had it within himself to do something like this. And so I don't know exactly why there's more hesitation with Jonathan. Maybe he's closer to Saul, and because of that, he just doesn't want to believe it. But whatever the reason, you just feel bad for him. Jonathan's in a horrible position, and he doesn't want this to be true. He doesn't want his dad and his best friend to be at odds with one another. He doesn't want to believe that his father is capable of something like this, especially against somebody that he loves. But you know what? I think that there's a good lesson in that for us. Just because we don't want to believe something doesn't mean it's not true. Just because we don't want to believe that something horrible would take place or, or because it involves a family member or something doesn't mean that's not the case. Now, I believe in giving people the benefit of the doubt. I really do. Probably more than I should. I believe in people getting second chances. I mean, that's a, that is a core tenet of Christianity, is the ability to forgive somebody and to move on. But if somebody has evil purposed in their heart, they are already set on it and they cannot be dissuaded, there's not a whole lot you can do for them at that point. And that's where Saul is right now. Jonathan doesn't believe that, but he's going to shortly. And I just really feel for this family that has been through all of this, and Jonathan, understandably, just doesn't want it to be true. But ultimately, he's going to find out that it is. He's going to find out that this is going to be something that absolutely destroys his family. And he doesn't want to believe it, but it is the truth. And sometimes, sometimes being wise and prudent means we have to pull our heads out of the sand and see people for who they really are, even when we love them. Now, Jonathan does know that his father has problems. Jonathan has already talked his dad basically back from the edge of darkness once before when he says, Dad, David's your servant. He's been loyal to you. He's done everything you've asked him to. Why would you want to do something terrible towards him? Why would you seek after him the way that you are? And maybe because he's already done that once, he thinks he can do it again or, or is just hoping for that. But either way, either way, this is going to be something that is incredibly difficult for him. But I think from David's perspective in this whole episode, I think it proves a powerful lesson for us too, which is God wants us to have faith, but he also wants us to be wise. I believe that God absolutely wanted David to have faith that he would deliver him. That if Saul wanted to kill him, it wouldn't matter because God has already promised him the throne. But you notice that David doesn't just walk around like he's invincible. David doesn't just take God's promise for granted and, you know, do reckless things. In the same way that Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan, he doesn't throw himself down to be caught by the angels. You don't tempt God. Is, Dave, is God going to be with David? Yeah. Is his providence going to protect David? Yeah. And I believe David understood that and knew that. But David still didn't go right up to Saul and basically say, here I am, take your best shot. He doesn't put himself in dangerous situations. It's the same way that there's a lot of Christians that I know, and I include myself in this, because if you see me, I guarantee you, unless we're walking into a government building or going on an airplane, I'm armed. 
I've always got my pistol on me. And I've had people, including members of the church, brethren that I know, say, well, do you not have any faith in God? I was like, well, do you wear a seatbelt? God expects us to take measures to protect ourselves and to protect those around us, those people that we love, those people that, you know, need protecting, that we have an obligation to protect them. God wants us to be smart. He loves us. He wants to take care of us. He wants to protect us. But ultimately, he also wants us to be working on our side, too. You see, it's about God giving 100%. God always gives 100%. He always loves us with an endless, eternal kind of love. He always protects us to the best of his ability. He always looks after us if we love him and, and we do what he asks us to do. But you know what? It's got to be 100% effort on our part, too. Just because God can deliver us out of any situation doesn't mean we, that we should run into them. Romans 6, where Paul is talking about sin, and he says, Shall we then continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. We turn around, we change ourselves, we act wisely as people of God. I mean, yeah, God wants us to, when we need him, to call out to him and to rely on his faith and his, or to rely on his faithfulness and rely on his promises. But he also wants us to do the best that we can to make sure that we are living in accordance to his word and doing the things that are wise to try to preserve our own lives as well. This is a principle that David understood very well, and we see it modeled in his behavior here. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.